Welcome to Arbitrary and Capricious from George Mason University's Seaboyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Gray Center's director, Adam White. On September 13th, the Gray Center hosted a conference on the future of White House regulatory oversight and cost-benefit analysis. At the conference, a number of scholars presented new research on cost-benefit analysis and the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA. All the papers that we discussed are available on the Gray Center's website, and the conference was keynoted by the White House's Acting Administrator of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Paul Ray. Our third panel focused on the use of regulatory budgets in White House regulatory oversight. For decades, scholars have debated whether agencies should be bound by regulatory budgets. In 2017, President Trump signed Executive Order 13771, placing a new kind of regulatory budget on executive agencies. At our conference, Jim Tozzi presented a new paper on OIRA and regulatory budgets. He was joined in the discussion by former White House OIRA Administrator Chris DeMuth and Professor Richard Pierce. And they were also joined by Anthony Campo, who served in OIRA under Administrator Naomi Rao and helped with the initial implementation of Executive Order 13771. The discussion was moderated by the Gray Center's Deputy Director, Andrew Kloster. Here's the recording. All right, well, if everybody's uh, ready, let's begin. Um, years and years ago, uh, the namesake of this law school, Antonin Scalia, before he was Justice Scalia, he was, among other things, a law professor and think tank scholar and edited a magazine called Regulation Magazine. Uh, it's still around. Yeah, you can look for it on the magazine rack next to People and Hollywood Reporter and so on. Uh, but in early 1980, in two issues of 1980, there was a two-part article in Regulation Magazine by a um, budding lecturer in public policy at the Kennedy School named Christopher DeMuth. And this article was, uh, the series of articles was a defense of uh, the idea of regulatory budgets. Uh, Forty years later, regulatory budgeting is a, a, a real fact of administration in the aftermath of Executive Order 13771. And so who better to have on this panel uh, then Christopher DeMuth, as well as other scholars and experts on the regulatory budgeting process. We're grateful to have them all. And to moderate this panel is the Center's Deputy Director, Andrew Kloster. Thanks, Adam. That good introduction, then. I guess we'll just get into our panelists. I'll introduce them in order, um, and then we'll go from there. So uh, our first panelist is uh, Jim Tozzi. He's the Managing Director at the Center for Regulatory Effectiveness. He was a longtime career regulatory official through uh, several administrations. He was the assistant director of OMB in charge uh, of, of, of the Office of Regulatory and Information Policy, which was a precursor to OIRA, and subsequently was appointed as the first deputy administrator of OIRA in the Office of Management and Budget. You can find Jim's paper, uh, OIRA Past, Present, and Future, which frames this panel discussion on our website. Uh, uh, next, we will have Anthony Campo. He's the Director of Government Regulation, uh, and he's counsel at Clark Hill, uh, Clark Hill PLC. He also serves as a visiting fellow in regulatory policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, prior to that, he served as Chief of Staff and Counselor at the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, for more than two years. Our third panelist will be the uh, aforementioned Chris DeMuth, Distinguished Fellow at the Hudson Institute, Distinguished Senior Fellow at our own Gray Center, uh, 
and uh, he was president of the American Enterprise Institute uh, for a long time, from 1986 to 2008. He is a frequent uh, commenter on regulatory matters and uh, also served in uh, a few presidential administrations. Our final panelist will be uh, Professor Dick Pierce. He's the Lyle T. Alverson Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. Uh, he's a longtime uh, academic with 125, I assume this is not correct by now, but 125 scholarly articles and 20 books on administrative law, uh, which have been widely cited. And he is also a senior fellow at ACUS, the Administrative Conference of the United States. So with that, uh, please, Jim. Thank you. Uh, uh, I appreciate being able to speak with you today, uh, and I'm grateful to, to the, uh, the center here for allowing me to speak to you, because if by chance I convince you to take any of my recommendations, uh, this group is the type of group I want to help have them implemented. So uh, it, it's, it, it's a self-promoting thing for me to get you to help me if I can. Now, at this time of year, uh, people write articles. When I say this time of year, halfway through a, a, a presidential administration, people write a number of papers. Some look backwards and say, what did the administration do and what should they do? Some look forward and say, what should their progress be and their, uh, their programs be in the future? The paper I've written says neither. The paper I've written is aimed strictly at what these other panels said today, which I had no idea they were gonna say, is that we gotta preserve what we have. And so the, the paper that I've written gives three recommendations and three recommendations to preserve what we have. And what I mean by we, I mean the pluralistic we. I mean the people in this room. I mean the predecessors to OIRA and all the people in the government agencies. But collectively, the community has made some big advances and I wanna preserve them. Now, after today, this morning, I heard the red tide is coming into Lake Oara, so maybe it's more useful than, than I had anticipated when I, wrote, when I wrote the paper. Now, all three, all three sections of paper recommend executive orders. And let me go through the first two real fast because the third one has to do with a regulatory budget. The first one basically says, I want the National Archivist to look through executive orders and come up and identify certain ones that I would define as iconic. And if you get the iconic label, then there would be a presumption against revocation, rebuttable presumption, presumption against revocation. Now, I want to do that now, not two years from now, when there's a change in administration. I want to embark upon this discussion immediately, and I don't want to wait for two years. And so, I, that, so that executive order that hopefully somebody will be working on, uh, would, be, would begin immediately. The second one that I have, the second executive order, is that several years uh, before I entered government service, the Kennedy administration issued a regulation, no, an executive order, that said OMB was un, the undisputed person or group in charge of the interagency review of executive orders. And 
At that point in time, OIRA was not in existence. And I would like that executive order revamped because OIRA is now in existence. And how it happens now, the request comes into the general counsel of OMB. There must be a dozen or, or so different operating units in OMB. And OIRA's comments are just one of 15 or 20. I would like OIRA to have a broader, broader role in that process. Now, let's get back, uh, let's get to the, the third one, uh, the least controversial. Uh, the regulatory budget. Uh, it has a rich history, as uh, Andrew and Chris said, it goes back at least 40 years. And uh, the, the, but the issues fundamental to uh, a regulatory budget goes back a lot further. And several uh, principles and several theories uh, predate that and have been around for years. One is the, uh, uh, the principal agency dilemma, where a principal such as the president delegates something to an agent and the views and process of the principal and what he likes and what he thinks is important is different from the agent. That's very important in a regulatory budget because that's exactly what happens when you do a regulatory budget. There's a principle and sometimes a, a difference with, with the agent. The other thing that is new, or not new, that's been around, that these two arguments have not been debated and have not been in, in, in included in the debate on regulatory budget is optimal delegation theory. Benjti uh, uh, Holstrom uh, got the Nobel Prize. He wrote this paper in 75. And really what that does, there's a lot of axiomatic theory that shows that when you have a principal agent dilemma and when you make that, that uh, transfer or, or, or put together the delegation, this is this whole theory of optimal delegation that tells you uh, the, the ideal system is what to do that. Now, putting through all those models and everything, what comes out of that? And you can read them, they're all referenced in my, my paper. Unequivocally, that bounded institutions, that means when you have a resource allocation system and it's bounded by some numeric total, that the chances and probability of having something more efficient and meet your objective is greatly en enhanced. So if you read all that, uh, there's a push towards uh, 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 bonded institutions. Now, I could spend the less of my last eight minutes or what I have, uh, uh, how many? Five, ooh, okay. Uh, uh, on, on that, but I want to move to something else. What I just described was life with a regulatory budget. I want to describe life without a regulatory budget for five. I'll buy you a drink if you give me five minutes. Okay, uh, now here's a question to be addressed. How well is centralized regulatory review working in the absence of a regulatory budget? That was some of the issues that were addressed today. Should any, and, and, and I think the analytical issue is, you don't put it mathematically, but you can say it. Should any and all rules whose benefits exceed their costs as validated by OIRA, should they be issued as final rules? Right now, in other words, right now, that if you're a regulator and you come up and you convince OMB that your benefits exceed the costs, uh, you have a, a ad infinitum drawing right uh, on de facto taxes to levy on the public. So that's a big prize to get, to get some, somebody to say the net benefits are positive. Well, other people in the history of these issues address this issue 
And we Americans have a nanosecond in interest in uh, history, but just give me a minute to tell you what it is. In 1936, the Flood Control Act told the Corps of Engineers you can build any project whose benefits exceed their costs. And in doing so, the Corps came up and started doing very exquisite benefit cost analysis on projects. And it's just like the, the Corps did them, then they were validated by Secretary of Army's office, and then they were also validated at times by OMB. And but they were then, even though it had net benefits positive, they were subject to an appropriation process because they, the net benefits in themselves didn't bring in funds. Now, here's the point I want to leave you with. Never in my career, until I got into regulatory business, did I ever hear that if net benefits are positive, the project is a go. That's completely new to me for the last 20 years in this field. It's never, and it's not in any other government program I know. You have net benefits of positive, you don't get automatic appropriation. Now, mm -hmm. under what conditions, if the net benefits are positive, would, you, would that fulfill another? So the question is, what is the difference between a, a dam that I have studied here and, how many minutes? Two, okay. What's the uh, difference between a dam I have studied here and a rule? The dam or the levee has net benefits positive, and so does the rule. Now, if you're a levee or a dam, are there a difference between a levee, a dam, and a rule? Well, yeah. One gets benefits from, uh, it emanates from a pile of paper, and the other uh, comes out from a pile of concrete. There's also one is a tax, and one is a de facto tax. So what is this mystique in this business that if you get net benefits, you automatically get the levy a tax? And the only economically way I could make that argument that you have is you would have to consider any rule that has positive net benefits as an entitlement program because you're you've met a certain metric and you get automatic de facto tax uh, on, the, uh, on, on the treasury. So my question is, what is what, where does this leave us? If you are of the opinion that net positive net benefits is the sole criteria to put a, ta uh, put a rule in the Federal Register, then you don't like regulatory budget. If you think there's other criteria, there's uncertainties in that, there's a lot of other activities, then I think you should adopt that a, a benefit-cost ratio with positive net benefits is a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition, for moving forward. And once you get into that condition, you have to rank order and put in together all the regulatory programs of the government together and look at them, and that leads to a benefit, that leads to the need for a, a regulatory budget. So in summary, minute, okay. in summary, OIRA has paid its dues, but it should graduate from a benefit-cost ratio cop to the manager of the regulatory programs of the government. And you don't do that by reading every reg. You look at the entire government, you look at all the rules simultaneously like you do a regular budget, and you look at areas that should be emphasized, and you should be look at areas that be de-emphasized. De I support benefit cost analysis. I think it should continue, but I think it's, get, it's moved to an area that's got too high of a, uh, a, a, a burden <coughs> in the decision process. Uh, okay, thank you.
great. Thank you, Jim. Um, setting my 10-minute stopwatch here. Um, thanks very much for having me today. Thanks to Adam and the center, um, uh, to uh, the center's founder, uh, Judge Rao, my former boss, um, to its namesake, and Master Boyden Gray, um, and to the distinguished panelists uh, here, uh, all, and all those who've come before us, uh, thank you for your service and contributions to uh, the intellectual space and to the practical space of implementing um, a regulatory budget and, um, and reform in our government. Um, I just want to talk briefly about um, sort of what's happened to date on the regulatory budget under 13771, how um, that's played out, how we've uh, achieved those results, and sort of the future of what I think is likely over the next couple of years, um, and then also hit some s systemic structural reforms that aren't exactly 13771, uh, but they are, I think, very critical for um, uh, the future um, of FREG budgeting and regulatory reform. Um, so just to, uh, in, in coming to what has happened to date, I guess what I really want to do is kind of clear up, uh, hope to clear up some misunderstanding and address some uh, criticism of what has happened. Uh, the first thing I think I want to note is um, that the two-for-one executive orders in the context of it, uh, first of all, the president setting out a very clear, two, what is two-for-one? It is an executive order from the president. He's saying very clearly he wants reform. So it's not just sort of bubbling up here and there. It's a very clear message from the top um, that is very useful getting to later on to how this is all implemented. Being able to point to an executive order from the president saying we want this is very helpful uh, in driving change. Um, but uh, that executive order was part of a suite of orders, 13777, that came out as well, um, uh, directs the regulatory reform task forces to look at not just this executive order from President Trump, but an executive order from Bill Clinton and Barack Obama to work on all three of those orders moving forward um, to achieve reform. So I think that's good, trying to kind of you know, bridge the um, political um, uh, divide there or make, and make this a collaborative project across um, administrations. Um, and then specifically about the two-for-one executive order, I think it's really important to note that we call it two-for-one colloquially. That's how the president talks about it. That's how uh, it generally gets covered in the press. But the executive order has two parts, as all of you know. It has the two-for-one part, and then it has the zero-dollar cost cap part. And those two parts really need to be uh, understood to operate together at all times, in all ways. It's, it's, it's essential. Um, and, and the focus on the two, I think, is where the press has gone, as I've said. There's been some criticism. Uh, well, just before getting to the criticism, just the results. 2017, uh, we announced that um, the results were 22 to 1. And then hearing some criticism that, well, you know, some of those are not, very, not significant regulatory actions. Others are economically significant. These aren't apples to apples. In 2018, we released a number that is consistent with the methodology from 2017, which was 12 to 1. But then we also did the apples to apples comparison, and that was 4 to 1. So even by that extremely conservative uh, methodology, you end up you know, far surpassing uh, the president's uh, direction in the 2 for 1 executive order. Um, but I think, I think some of the um, criticisms of the, the, uh, the, the methodology are worth discussing for a little bit. There was a, uh, as I mentioned, there's some discussion of, well, these are, some of these are not significant regulatory actions on the DREG side. And then on the regulatory side, you have economically significant rules. How can that possibly be? 
And I think it's important to just think about what the magnitude of, the, of, of what we were trying to tackle. We we're trying to change the direction overall of the government, change the flow of regulations in a very significant fundamental way. And that is not an easy thing to do, um, as you can imagine. And so the, the two, the, the reason that um, the guidance that we issued provides more flexibility on that front is really to try to get at all the small things that maybe would otherwise just be left in place because they don't outweigh a large economically significant rule. It's important. There is a there is one letter sent out from DOI that said you can't use lead sinkers on your fishing lines and lead ammo in your guns uh, when you're hunting on federal lands. So there's no cost-benefit analysis in that prior letter from the last administration. Pulling it back doesn't result in any cost savings. But that's the sort of thing that should we just leave it on the books because it doesn't offset a massive economically significant rule? Uh, maybe not. Uh, probably not. And so we tried to create a system that encourages a kind of cultural shift within the agency to look for low-hanging fruit, to look for sort of mid-sized things. A lot of those actions, uh, as you know, they don't have uh, cost-benefit uh, analysis in them. They're guidance documents, they're notices, um, and all of it has real-world effects. Um, and so it, trying to create some sort of uh, a mechanism to capture and reward uh, you know, what was seen as good behavior in that area, I think, is, is, makes a lot of sense. And um, if there's a criticism that, well, that can be gamed or something, that's where the $0 cost cap comes in and is hard and fixed and very difficult to avoid. And so those two pieces work in tandem. And just on that score, the cost caps, I think it's important just to emphasize, because again, most of the reporting that comes out on this is about the two-for-one number, because that's what you know, we like to talk about, but the $0 cost cap, the president said no net new regulatory costs, and two years in a row, the government has produced no net new regulatory costs. I mean, this is extraordinary, and I don't think many people thought at all that we could achieve that. Um, and I think the way, in large part, that it was achieved was having the flexibility on the two side to encourage uh, uh, good behavior and sort of try to change the mindset from thinking always pro-regulatory to thinking more pro-regulatory reform and what are all the various things that we can do, whether it's information collections or notices or letters, what are all the things that we can do to get credit in this new system? So I think it's a, an interesting, sophisticated system, actually, that, um, that has produced results. So it's not just zero dollars of, of total net new cost, but also almost all agencies are in compliance. I mean, this is also extraordinary. It's not like half the agencies are not in compliance and a few are doing good and they're offsetting. Like every, almost everyone is in compliance for the, run of, the whole run of the administration. That also is extraordinary. Um, and the savings there, 10 billion net savings, uh, present savings, uh, 23 billion net savings in 2018. And we'll find out soon enough, I'm sure, uh, for 2019 what the numbers are. But two years in a row on the budget side, on the cost side, um, of, of hitting and exceeding the president's goal. Um, as to how this got done, um, I think it's um, just quickly, so we, we built on a lot of existing mechanisms. So obviously the ordinary review process, the unified agenda, and I guess one part of the unified agenda that uh, we've talked about, it's been talked about a little bit, but I think it's worth kind of underscoring here 
there was, um, uh, in the process of putting out the first unified agenda, it was the first agenda of the Trump administration, um, we're pulling together all the numbers, and there was a point at which we had a, a, a set of numbers that looked <coughs> beautiful. They were perfect, they were great. Um, but then I saw, we saw another list over here that was really long and it had lots of stuff on it that I thought people probably wouldn't like. And we were wondering, what is, what is this list over here? And uh, a report from ACUS was brought to my attention, uh, to our attention, um, uh, highlighting the creation of this pending action list in the Obama administration. Um, which is a non-public list of rules in the pipeline. It was almost 700 rules uh, when the president uh, was inaugurated, uh, when, he, when he took office. Um, and, um, and that list swelled in the two-for-one first review process. And Mick, Mick has talked about this publicly, so. Uh, but I, but it's, it's, it's important to know. I mean, that, we, we saw that growing and we said, we're not trying to make it look like we're doing a good job. We're trying to actually do a good job. We're trying to actually deliver on reforms that the president campaigned on and has talked about uh, widely. And so while maybe some people think it's a small thing, the, it's the unified agenda, who cares? It's not really regulations. We wanted the agenda to reflect um, the agenda of the president and the administration and to not have sort of hidden all the other stuff that doesn't maybe look so good. So that was when uh, Mick and others made the decision to make that list public. Um, and we said to, to the agencies, everything that's anywhere in the GSA system is going to be public. So you need to be prepared to own it and support it. And somewhere, and it's not, I don't think it's uh, any particular person's fault. It's the beginning of administration. There were not a lot of people there waiting for people to be confirmed by the Senate, in many cases still waiting. Uh, but um, uh, uh, it was important to have, um, uh, once we decided to make that list public, that is when almost overnight, agencies started paying a lot more attention to the list. Um, and a lot of regulations came off, as has been noted, some 1,500 regulations in that pipeline were removed from the pipeline or delayed in it. Um, and that's just one initial step that just started to send, again, a message, part of a sort of confluence of factors here. It's not no one thing uh, leads to the uh, results that were achieved, but that is one sort of thing that contributed positively to that, um, getting rid of the pending list. Also, just building off of existing mechanisms, the Paperwork Reduction Act, the Congressional Review Act, the Reg Flex Act, all of those existing mechanisms provided a lot of ways to get at rules um, and make changes uh, consistent with the budget. Um, and then I know I'm out of time here, so just one uh, final note on those kind of structural forms that I think are really important. Um, the new review process for Treasury rules is enormously important and I think is likely to be a long-term reform that um, will uh, benefit the public much as OIRA review in all other areas benefits uh, the public and the production and the, the quality of the rulemaking process. Um, um, and, um, and then as to the future, I think uh, just quickly, in the beginning we, we, um, you know, we obviously went at that low-hanging fruit as I was talking about and we sort of had a, a phase of year one of getting rid of a of, of lot of the low-hanging fruit and then um, starting to propose in the next year a lot of rules, and now we're getting to the point where those rules are starting to be finalized. So criticism of, you know, court, you know, what, what has played out in court in some cases is largely around 
early delay rules that were not the sort of substantive rewrites, um, those are just going out now. As you've seen, the ESA reforms just went out, Clean Power Plan's out. So all those kind of larger reforms are underway and are just now coming out. And I think we're just about to start seeing the, the, the benefits of the larger regulatory reform uh, program now and maybe other, you know, things in the pipeline that we'll be talking about in the near future. But that's all for now. Thank you very much. Chris? Jim Tozzi is an institutional economist, capital I, capital E. He is an activist, Douglas North, uh, par excellence. Uh, he, like uh, Susan and Stuart this morning, is impressed by the durability of the White House review and cost-benefit standard programs, uh, but he wants to embed them in institutions uh, to fortify OIRA as an institution, uh, the executive orders uh, that we have, and he has some highly imaginative ideas uh, for doing it. I knew Jim as an institution builder when we were working together at OIRA in the first uh, Reagan term. Sometimes he would brief me on something, and I would say, Jim, can we do that? And he would say, we already have. <laughs> so I asked him this morning, does the National Archives have an executive order, iconic order program? And he said, it does now. <laughs> so he's got that idea. Uh, he wants to expand OIRA's formal role in the issuance of executive orders. All of these are to bolster, fortify it uh, over time. He gives us an institutional uh, history of cost-benefit analysis in the executive office of the president. Uh, uh, he points out, and, and his institutional history really complements Susan Dudley's, I think, very nicely. He points out that in the 1970s, the idea of a regulatory budget was kicking around uh, at the time uh, that uh, the institutions and the presidents, as they came in, uh, uh, had a decision to make and went with cost-benefit uh, analysis. Uh, he thinks that uh, after several uh, decades of learning, it is good to move on uh, to a more constraining program, and that is a regulatory budget. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's quite a valuable contribution that Jim has made that we should think about these problems as uh, pro problems of uh, uh, of uh, uh, the princi principal agent problems in the context of a large uh, institution, uh, a problem that exists uh, in uh, extreme, in severe form, in regulatory policy where you have mission-oriented agencies with power to order very large private expenditures on behalf of their mission. Uh, they will, if left to their own devices, order expenditures that take too little account of competing demands uh, on resources, 
uh, some form of constraint uh, is, uh, is appropriate. Uh, and uh, uh, he makes, I think, a very powerful uh, case that uh, benefit-cost analysis is not uh, sufficient. <clears throat> he makes, there's a big contribution in this paper simply to uh, call attention to uh, Yair uh, Listokin's uh, paper in the law, Yale Law Journal, Bounded Institutions, of, uh, of a couple of years ago. It was published in 2014. I think it's the most important uh, intellectual uh, contribution on the issue of uh, the management of regulatory policy uh, that has come along in many decades. Uh, it is not an advocacy piece, it's analytical. It points out the advantages and limitations of what would be, in the context of regulatory policy, a regulatory uh, budget. It points out that an institution that is uh, uh, bounded, as he said, is constrained, can actually be decentralizing, uh, rather than uh, calling on the agencies to have the decisions centralized somewhat uh, in uh, the office of the president. Uh, it relies on their uh, incentives uh, within a budget to make choices that uh, will be on net uh, beneficial. Uh, it is not. Uh, <coughs> It is not without uh, without costs. There are benefits and disadvantages uh, to both, but it adds up to <clears throat> a powerful uh, support for the ideas of people that want to make to take this uh, next uh, step. Uh, why was it that cost benefit uh, was uh, chosen? I think part of it. Jim points out that there were economists uh, that had been. Uh, working in the government on public works projects. People were starting to say that we should apply uh, benefit cost analysis extended from public works projects to uh, regulation. There was something else. There was, a, there was discussion of the idea of informal versus formalized benefit cost analysis. When very, very busy political officials at a senior level in the White House hear that something is up, uh, at some agency around town. They're getting complaints from people in Congress or from supporters of uh, the administration. Uh, and you have five minutes with the chief of staff or deputy, deputy chief of staff at the White House. That person wants to know, what are these guys up to anyway? How much is it going to cost? Why do they think it's a good idea? Do we think it's a good idea? And we're getting all these complaints. Is there anything we can do to make it a better decision. That's an informal benefit. That's, it's a, it is a reporting mechanism from the agent to the uh, principal. Uh, and uh, through uh, the various programs in the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations, it came to be somewhat more uh, formalized through the processes that uh, uh, Susan and Jim talk about. Uh, and it was the natural next step when the Reagan people, uh, when the Re when the Reagan people came to town. Um, it has been durable to extend what I said this morning because cost-benefit analysis is a constraint, but it is a very elastic constraint, uh, as Jim points out. Benefit-cost analysis, it's a decision-making tool. It is not an economizing tool. Uh, the number of things that can be done in the world that pass a benefit-cost test is infinite. You can justify anything. That doesn't mean that we can go ahead and do everything that consumes resources today simply because 
there's a good chance that using these resources would produce uh, a good thing. So it is a very elastic uh, constraint, and I think uh, Dick uh, will, I, I think that his paper that he's going to explain, it, it's a little bit waggish, uh, but he's saying, well, if we're going to have a regulatory budget, given the fabulous benefits uh, that uh, government regulation has produced over the years, as documented by Sally and Susan and Krista Muth and all of these people, fabulous benefits. Um, as I read him, I think that, I think that the, his regulatory budget would be several trillion dollars. He can elaborate on it, but it should be a massive budget, um, uh, probably higher than the 4.7 uh, trillion uh, expenditure budget we are <coughs> laboring under uh, today. And uh, he thinks that, that this expansion of the regulatory state would clearly be beneficial. I think it would be difficult for a president to come in and say, we're going for another four point, another four trillion dollars of regulatory expenses. It would be politically a difficult thing to make, but it illustrates the idea that benefit-cost analysis is actually a powerful tool of imagining and justifying regulatory growth. The efforts uh, that uh, we've just been told about <coughs> to uh, institute a, a, a regulatory budget. It's clearly still a work in, pro in process. It has not uh, resulted in dramatic uh, reductions, uh, taking uh, rules off the book. It could not have so far. It has not been a binding constraint because <clears throat> uh, there's been so little new uh, regulatory activity. Some people are worrying that the administration may not meet its budget goals by, it's got two weeks to go for this uh, fiscal year. We will see. Uh, it is being, uh, it is being uh, developed and um, uh, it, is hard to, it is hard to see uh, exactly how it is going to shake out, whether they can make additional uh, progress. Uh, most of the rules that have been relaxed or changed have been high uh, profile ones, the uh, Clean Power Plan, Waters of the United States, uh, the discretionary uh, bans of incandescent light bulbs, the fiduciary rule, uh, the guidance on uh, sexual assault procedures uh, uh, on, uh, on campus. <coughs> the interesting thing will be in the next year or so, especially if the administration, as most administrations do, becomes more pro-regulatory over time. So they have, uh, they have their bump stock rule. Now they're going to ban vaping. Uh, presidents start to do things, and these things will be very costly. Uh, uh, to implement them is going to require uh, digging more deeply into the uh, installed base of regulation uh, than we have seen uh, so far. Uh, without uh, prejudging how any of that might go, I would like to make some suggestions for what OIRA could do in the meantime, which would both fortify the benefit-cost standard and, I believe, pave the way uh, for the uh, more ambitious and comprehensive idea of a uh, regulatory uh, budget. The first, which I mentioned this morning, is OIRA should simply have on its website a place where you can go and get all of the regulatory impact analyses that are being done in all of the regulations. I want to tie 
I, I, I want to make it clear that OIRA's raison d'etre is the integrity of benefit cost analyses and uh, how good a job the agency is doing. Everybody wants to avoid it. OIRA is really about improved information. We were told at lunch, actually, OIRA is about democratic accountability. That's all fine. OIRA is about making regulations more cost beneficial. I want to tie OIRA to the mast and not let them put that like 10th on the list of the nice things that they're doing for the American government. Having these things front and center right at the top of the OIRA website would facilitate the sort of criticism that we've had on some rules here uh, today uh, and uh, develop, uh, uh, develop this uh, central part of what OIRA uh, does. Um, I would like to eliminate the distinction. I can't even figure out where it came from between a regulatory action and a deregulatory action. This turns out in practice to be filled with uh, uh, metaphysical uh, dilemmas. Uh, the administration had to uh, <coughs> impose a new uh, labeling rule for bioengineered foods. Congress told them to do it. Uh, they did it. It's going to cost a lot of money to comply with these new labeling regulations. Uh, the uh, Agriculture Department concluded that the benefits would be zero. But it also concluded that if it didn't do this, the state of Vermont, which already has a much tougher Ben and Jerry's bioengineered food labeling uh, uh, program, would probably be followed nationally. So they actually called it deregulatory. It doesn't make any difference. You got a two out and one in rule. You abolish a rule, you add a rule. There are costs and benefits to those actions. You don't need to spend a lot of time, and there's an enormous amount of time. In the papers we have today, uh, on the websites, is this a regulatory action or is it a deregulatory action? It's an action. We abolished a rule or we added a rule, and it has costs and benefits, and uh, we can do without that. I think that OIRA should have a general counsel. Uh, when I was there, we had some terrific uh, high-powered lawyering. Uh, at the beginning, uh, Cass Sunstein over at the Justice Department was involved in drafting 12291. We had Boyden Gray. We had Mike McConnell at, uh, at uh, OMB. Um, and we've had several lawyers, the current acting that we heard from, he, uh, he went to law school. Um, but these reg regulatory issues, as we've seen in almost everything we've discussed today, the economic issues and the legal issues are increasingly uh, intertwined. And I believe that OIRA itself has to have a stable of lawyers that are there year in and year out that have seen these issues go, that can, that can help avoid, uh, make, there have been several unforced errors uh, in uh, legal, uh, legal unforced errors in this administration. Uh, so far, OIRA ought to have been able to have caught them to have caught them. But most of all, I think that that is important for implementing the uh, NOE-GRAM uh, program. It's not just sending an order out to the agencies saying maximize your discretion to consider benefits and costs and individual rules. Uh, this, this is going to require a lot of peacemake from regulation and statute to regulation and statute. And I think that that needs to be done uh, internally in OIRA. Uh, the Supreme Court took the unusual step 
of um, of telling uh, of staying the um, of staying the Clean Water Act rule because it was very suspicious uh, about it. Um, I think that uh, the idea that the executive branch can change private rights and obligations before the judicial branch has said that this is actually lawful to do this, it's an outrage that I think we've all just gotten used to, and it's well within the capacity of the president to tell his regulators that the pen, the date, the effective date of your rules has to be after we have a final decision from the judicial branch. Chris? So everybody knows that this is a legal rule before people start complying with it. And to take away from the agencies this technique that they do very, very well of telling their stakeholders that, well, we're going to argue about this in court, but here's the effective date. And of course, we're expecting everybody who's really part of the team here at OSHA to comply with these things in advance, which has the effect of mooting a lot of what the courts uh, do. Chris, we're going to have to. Am I through? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so there are two reasons I always like to be on a panel with uh, Jim Tozzi. The first is, that means I won't be the oldest person on the panel. Uh, the, the, the second is, he, he always leads us to, in the right direction to find the right answer to very important questions. And so in his paper, he, he notes, as both he and Chris uh, uh, mentioned in, in their oral presentations, that the, the justification for a regulatory budget is primarily opportunity cost of capital. Uh, the, the concern is that if we uh, really force investments by third parties, regulated firms, um, then that's committing resources to something, and if we, if we could uh, commit those same resources to something else and get a better return on them. And uh, so I looked at that and I said, I think that's absolutely right. So that means the, the, the right question is not, should we have a regulatory budget, but how do we calculate the rational, economically rational ceiling, uh, is it, for instance, the uh, zero incremental cost ceiling or, uh, that, that uh, is implied by the president's order? And so I said, okay, we've got all the data we need readily accessible to, to make that determination. Uh, every year, OIRA is required to make an annual report to Congress about the relationship between the costs and the benefits of every rule that OIRA considered over the last 10 years. And the average of the ratios is 7 to 1, okay? There are seven times as many benefits on average as there are costs. And by the way, I went back and I, I took a quick look, and it, it doesn't vary depending on whether it, the rule was issued during a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, the variations are trivial. The, the, the overall number is 7 to 1. So what does that mean? That means we're getting a 600% return on our investment in, in regulation. Uh, so you could use that as a basis to figure out what the ceiling. Now, I'm not mandating that we immediately crank up to the ceiling level. A ceiling is only a ceiling. But it, that tells me we're a hell of a long way 
from the economic ceiling, economically rational ceiling on regulatory expenditures. It also provides an easy way of figuring out whether we're approaching it. Just look at the annual report. If and when we ever get to a ratio of 1.1 to 1, then there might be some concern because there may be investments out there, alternative investments out there that would pay better than a 10% return. But as long as we're talking about 600% return, I'm not worried about us being anywhere near the economically rational ceiling on any regulatory budget. Now, both uh, Jim and, and, and Chris and uh, every other advocate of, of regulatory budgets, uh, real quick to point out that, that we don't have regulatory budgets in the appropriation context. Uh, true, we also don't have cost-benefit analysis. In fact, we don't have cost-benefit analysis in anything involving fiscal policy. We make decisions all the time to add or subtract taxes and to add or subtract appropriations, massive numbers, without doing any cost-benefit analysis at all. I wish we did cost-benefit analysis on it. I think it would look very, very different from what we have today. Uh, we have this little thing called a trillion dollar annual deficit. If you're like me, you have trouble wrapping your mind around a trillion dollars. I've never had a trillion dollars. Uh, but but let, let me see if I can translate this. this. This is primarily a function of two things. Uh, tax cuts for super rich people, I'm one of them, uh, and uh, massive benefits for uh, entitlement benefits for middle-class uh, people. So let me translate this into a particular situation. Me, okay, I, I won't tell you exactly what I make, but I'm massively overpaid, okay? And then I have income from other sources. And then I get $40,000 a year from Social Security. And then the most recent tax cut gave me another $23,000 in disposable income. So thank you very much. You guys just made an investment in me of an additional $63,000 a year. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. So what am I doing with that to, to, to provide social benefits? Well, I love traveling to places like Antarctica and Africa. That's what I'm using it for, okay? So I thank you. The government of Botswana thanks you. Uh, National <laughs> Geographic and Lindblad thank you. But I think you're nuts. Uh, and what I would love to see is somebody sit down and, and do some cross-benefit analysis of both tax decisions and spending decisions, and I'm betting you we would not have a trillion-dollar deficit. And if there's a problem of waste of scarce capital that could be put to better uses, it's fiscal policy where we should be looking, not regulatory policy. Thank you. <laughs> So, Jim, do you want to amend your paper to add? I'm just going to be quiet. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'd just like to uh, allow uh, Jim and Anthony and, and Chris time pot uh, potentially to respond to anything that any of the other panelists said, and, and obviously uh, Professor Pierce as well. But I do have a uh, first question before we go to the audience, which is, if you all could talk a little bit more about, about boundedness, I thought that was very interesting. Um, so, of course, the, the, the managerial difficulty is setting boundedness, and, and, and what, what Administrator Ray mentioned, the first thing that he, he asked of the administration was, 
he needed political support when he was going toe to toe with uh, the principals and other in other agencies. And uh, you know, we have all of these examples of of you know, you come up with a cost benefit. Uh, uh, you come up with a number and, and someone gets an exception. Uh, and I know, Anthony, you mentioned that every agency came into compliance. I'm just kind of curious for all the panelists, um, is, our, is our system, I think I know the answer to this, but is our system actually bounded when we're talking about reg budgets? How do you make it more bounded? Um, well, first let's get to bounded. As Chris said that the year the Stoke and the dystopian at Yale did this. First of all, the point is, some people think of regulatory budgets and it's just we're adding numbers up and we're putting them in the columns and drawing lines. There's a big, long theoretical development over many years of optimization of, if you want to go to national efficiency and how you do that. And a point that I made, I don't when you read that stuff, you talk about nerdy stuff as nerd. Um, but it, there's a whole body of thought that shows over a number, uh, a number of mathematical and a lot of other thoughts that if you're going to allocate resources, and economics is the allocation of scarce resources, that if you make those decisions under a bounded, a bounded, a bounded institution, that national efficiency comes up higher. And so the, the points that have been made is that now, we do not have a regulatory budget per se in that way because we're in the, infinite, in the infancy of the regulatory budget. Because what we said, or I didn't say it, I don't say anything anymore. Uh, what they said was a regulatory budget of zero, okay? And so that regulatory budget of zero, the optimization there is that you just don't go over the top. So there's no, there's no optimization per se in terms of all the things I said. So if you uh, look at an earlier one, the one that was developed by the Carter administration, um, and people asked us to do, what do you call it, two in, one out, but we had a problem with the offsets because there was a big fight with the lawyers. They said there was a little bump in the road called the APA, so we took it out. Uh, but in that one there, we set actual targets for each agency uh, that they could have. So I, 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 so I can't say the current one is bounded. It's bounded to this extent, though. It's bounded by a zero. Okay, which is a unique bound, okay. And I guess, be, you know, at the outset of the administration, <clears throat> coming up with those numbers for each agency is a difficult task. I mean, that's, that is something that was considered, you know, extensively. And do you, do you set, do you sort of just pick numbers? Do you, what do you do? Do you take 25% of the stock over the last few years? I mean, how do you decide um, what that ought to be? And so to sort of focus the mind and have everyone working toward the same thing. It's, as you say, it's not perfectly bounded. It's not um, exactly a regulatory <laughs> budget, but setting that $0 clear goal out in front of everyone and with a long guidance document written by OIRA providing for a number of accommodations and features that are uh, useful for the proper implementation of the program to account for some of the uh, things you talked about. Um, uh, I think that that was very useful in this ca case. In, in, in future years, as you saw sort of at the beginning, the zero was the number, but then we left the flexibility for the subsequent years to set it and adjust it based on things once we were able to get in and work on the individual uh, 
agencies and see what they think is likely and what is possible um, given the flexibilities that they have within their regulatory frameworks under statute and, and those, those sorts of things. So it's not perfect and precise, but I think for an initial experiment in this area, I think it was quite, quite useful. One other thing, I think Richard hit the, the hardest point in a regulatory budget. How do you set the totals? And there is there's very little theoretical work, and even if you use all the things of, 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 of optimal theory of delegation and everything on the books, I don't know of any easy answer to answer what Richard said is how you set that total. And you can, there's some ways you can do it, but that is a very important problem, and I don't, I can't give you the answer to that one. Chris? Uh, <clears throat> actually, there is an answer. Uh, and the answer is that the bound is um, exogenous. It is random. Uh, and in the kind of budgeting that we know in the expenditure side of what the government does, Congress gives you a number. And it's politically determined. How much are we going to spend on national defense versus food stamps versus bridges versus uh, uh, NIH uh, research. Well, there's some history, there's political pressures, but it's essentially, uh, we don't worry about the bound because it's just those, those guys on Capitol Hill, they figure it out, and, uh, and we work with that. For the executive branch to do it uh, through a sort of a rational, some formal rationalized pro uh, uh, program, it's, it's very, very, it's, it's, it's very hard to do because it's inherently uh, arbitrary. Now, Dick would say, no, it's not. The budget is you keep at, not only may you, but you should keep adding regulations until we get one-to-one -one ratios in the benefit cost standards that you're setting to us. That would be a sort of rationalized idea, but that's not much of a bound. And in almost all of the principal agent literature, the principal knows the bound right, and then right. the agent lives within it. I wish the budgeting process worked that way. It doesn't. Uh, the largest sums in the budget are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Which and are unbudgeted. nobody unbudgeted. looks at them. They're off budget. Right. Congress does not look at them at all. Congress will not touch them. The president will not touch them. Uh, Which is what you want for regulation, unbounded. Oh, no, I'd have a boundary. Uh, and I think we're way beyond the boundary that should apply to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, but uh, 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 nobody will touch those. I think we're talking nickels and dimes versus uh, hundreds of billions. Uh, somebody needs to address entitlements. I should not be getting $40,000 a year of your money. Richard, I worked for five presidential administrations and looked at another five, and I've never found one administration that wanted to take on entitlements of either party. Right. It is untouchable. And if you go to that article I wrote, and there's those footnotes, go to the, uh, there's one called Give Us and Take It. And I used to work in the budget side for years, and I said, you know, I wonder if there's a way you can really control this, these entitlement programs. And I was writing all mathematical games and stuff, and I just couldn't get any of the game theory to give me a game theoretic solution where you could actually ever come without, uh, with a socially acceptable way to 
balance the budget, I mean, to, to do a title approach. Always got the null set in the vectors, okay? So I said, well, I'm giving up on working on budgets. I'll go on working. Because taketh programs you might control, but giveth programs you'll never control. And I think, Richard, I don't know if anyone's going to address that problem. Well, we can go to the audience for questions now. Uh, do we have someone with a mic floating around? Okay. I think there's mics on the side. And if you could hand one down to the front right here. Thanks. Sure. So this comments primarily for Professor Pierce. I share your... Um, your, your passion for considering the opportunity cost of capital. And I think that to the Trump administration's credit, they have stopped issuing those annual OMB reports to Congress. And one of the reasons why that's a good thing is precisely because they tend to ignore the opportunity cost of capital. And it, this isn't widely known even among a lot of economists, but if you ask experts on cost-benefit analysis, they'll tell you that the proper way to account for the opportunity cost of capital is to adjust the value of capital-related benefits and costs with a shadow price. It's not, for example, to use like a discount rate, which is the common approach. But that's actually wrong. And if you ask experts, even experts at OIRA, they will tell you that that's the wrong approach. And so the end result is essentially that opportunity cost is simply ignored. And so we have big benefits and we have costs, and we're not considering the fact that those costs could be invested and would grow into something in value in the future. By contrast, something like a zero cost cap forces consideration of the opportunity cost of capital. It forces consideration of economic efficiency because it, it demands, essentially, that the rate of return to capital be positive. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I guess as to your first point, the, do you actually believe that if you made the calculation right, we'd come up with uh, reports that the costs exceed the benefits? I mean, we were talking about seven to one ratios. It takes a hell of a big math error to explain a seven to one ratio. The cost would be 10 to 50 times more? Yes. I'd love to see that calculation on paper. The shadow price is more and more. Well, I, I, I'm from Missouri. I want to see it. Well, well, let's get to the other point about, uh, you know, if you ask um, some people in OR about those annual reports that you're talking about, Richard, it's a question how accurate they are. Uh, those numbers, unless Susan knows more recent than I, those numbers were generated by the agencies and never reviewed by OMB. OMB just sort of stapled them together and added them up. So as far as I know, those large numbers in there, there was never any quality control on them. And I don't know if that's still right, but it wasn't for a number of years. So I think those are very high numbers. They might be accurate, but I think that it may need subject to some other review. This actually leads me to a, a, a bigger concern, and it's something that Sally Kasson raised this morning. Uh, uh, 
uh, and, and Stewart also referred to it. Uh, um, I, what I'm now hearing is CBA is crap. You get all the wrong numbers, okay? Or, to put it another way, the way the Obama administration did it, massively inflated benefits, or, in Stewart's view, the way this administration is doing it, it's all wrong the other way. And if that is the prevailing view, cost-benefit analysis is dead, and it ought to be dead. Now, I don't believe that. I believe there is something to it. I believe that while there are, are certainly uh, margins for error, uh, and, and, and we should never be looking at pinpoint numbers, we should be looking at ranges of numbers and understand that there's a, a, a big area of uncertainty on both the cost side and the... But if the public gets the impression, as I increasingly hear they might from people in this group that this is crap because a Republican will come up with this set of numbers, a Democrat with this set of numbers. No decisional tool is useful if it is that pliable. So let me just address that part. I think um, benefit cost analysis can be manipulated. They, it's very uncertain, and the assumptions that go into it matter a lot in what you get for outcomes. Chris this morning talked about the fine particles. That Those benefits from reducing those comprise, I think, about 80% of all the benefits that you're talking about. Just a few assumptions would change those to zero because they don't know what the causal link is. So if you, you find out actually indeed this is not causal, um, that would drop to zero and then I think you do very quickly get costs that are, are, are much more than the benefits. Well, I just had occasion, I, I, I've always been a little concerned about the six city study, which as you know is the sole basis, was initially the sole basis for that. And so I just read a 400-page book about uh, the, the subsequent studies and how they relate to the Six Cities study. It's a fascinating read, and, and uh, 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 even though the folks who did the Six Cities study, that's the basis for this, this number, is the number they came up with, the Harvard researchers, uh, 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 e even though they were unwilling to hand over their working papers, and I think that was pretty bad, and, and they should have been required to do so. Uh, what we have since then is, is a dozen studies that uh, they don't come exactly the same, but they corroborate. They're consistent with the six city study. So now there wasn't very strong support for it at the time, initial time that EPA relied on it. Today there's pretty strong support for it. Turns out small particulate matters kill a lot of people. The distinction between correlation or association and causation is important there, and I, I think there's still very big questions about the validity of those estimates, and that does drive the benefits. But we're back to so then, if, and if it's true what, under yours, then we should every other agency should should stop regulating at all. So eighty percent of this is crap. Should be eighty percent of this is is something that one person can say it's there, and one person, you know, if you really believe that then I, I don't see how you can continue to defend 
something, a mechanism that I find a very valuable tool and always thought was a valuable tool. If 80% of it is, can disappear based on, well, it's uncertain, so maybe it's zero, maybe it's well, tens of thousands of deaths, uh, uh, then... This gets to the principal agent problem, because I don't think benefit cost analysis is crap and that it should be ignored. But I do think that some of the things that we're talking about forces us to think more about the opportunity costs and can we use money in a better way and get more lives saved. And so I think that's what we're talking about, some kind of um, constraint that forces that rather than a rule of thumb that just says, as long as we can show there are benefits, let's use it without looking at how else that money might be spent. Uh, is it on, on this issue? Okay. Well, then, so we, we can go to Rusty's uh, right there, and then we'll go to the back next. Hi, so I just wanted to add on that last point. Um, even if we all think that there's some kind of range when it comes to cost-benefit analysis, I don't think the conclusion is to get rid of it. Um, I actually will offer a different normative view, which is that um, a commitment to cost-benefit analysis and then say some reliance on studies that maybe, maybe it's correlation, not causation. But as long as we have that commitment in place, that should create the incentives for anyone who disagrees to produce better studies and keep looking into these issues because I think we do want to know ultimately if particulate matter causes or doesn't, right? So then you have this incentive to keep doing this analysis and it gets better over time, at least that's the hope. You know, we talked about a lot of other things that can incentivize this kind of continuing improvement over the analysis, retrospective review for sure, um, as Sally and Susan both mentioned in the beginning panel, et cetera. So I just want to make that point that still having that in place, that commitment in place, drives the incentives to make it better. Um, but I wanted to just, and then make a small little point about the regulatory budget because the budget is important. So, so the assumption, so I guess the problem here is that you're doing cost-benefit analysis and maybe the agency is overvaluing the benefits relative to what society thinks, say. So that's why when Richard looks at OMB, that doesn't give us quite the answer because maybe they're overvaluing it. Okay. So this, the budget creates some internal pressure to do the prioritization that we want them to do, and then the answer should come out aligned with what society would actually want, um, because they'll pick the best ones first. Even if they're overvaluing it, subject to the constraint, they will pick the same policies. And Yair talks about that, and also the whole optimization literature focuses on this. But to make it actually net beneficial for society, you do have to think about, are you setting the budget at the right level? So I think that is a very important point. Now we can say it's exogenous, that's fine, I guess. Um, and I guess the theory is you elect a president and the president sets, you know, well, this is what society thinks is the value. Um, but if this becomes the overlay over cost-benefit analysis going forward, I think that's a key important decision um, that should be transparent and discussed, et cetera, because I think that changes, uh, that's the key, that ends up deciding whether we're going to be net beneficial for society. So we can go to the back if you have, it's all very Hegelian. All right. Uh, Jamie Conrad, um, the, this whole discussion of regulatory budgets proceeds on the assumption that, that agencies are the sources of, of regulation, that, that they impose regulations and they impose costs sort of acting on their own. Agencies are the creatures of statute, 
agencies can only do the things that Congress has authorized them to do. Most of the regulations we're talking about are things Congress has instructed them to do. A, a, a regulatory budget concept that focuses on agencies, I think, has the moral hazard that it allows Congress and members of Congress to stand up and take credit for having done wonderful things and then turn around and blame the agencies for imposing these terrible costs on people that are only the, and the, the ones Congress imposed. So it seems to me, uh, and I'm interested in folks' thoughts, that the, the more morally useful approach would be to have a, a requirement, maybe a point of order, that says that uh, no statute can, can be taken up on the, no bill can be taken up on the floor that, that authorizes regulations that doesn't include in, in, in that authorization, a budget that tells the agency the amount of cost that they're allowed to impose on the public in the course of implementing that regulation. Because then Congress becomes accountable for the costs that are imposed. Then, the, then all you're dealing with with agencies is how efficiently they're doing it, and that's what OIRA does just fine now. But the, the idea of the, of the regulatory budget seems to me needs to be on Congress, or else you're just creating a, a kind of morality play. I'm the last one to know anything about a morality play, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, I would say this, Jimmy, is that is one way to get the Congress involved. When Chris says it would be an exogenous input, that's one, that's one mechanism of doing that. And I would just add that um, one reason I think it is useful uh, to just to have to focus on agencies, you may also focus on Congress, but is because uh, especially as Congress passes fewer and fewer bills, uh, there's still problems out in the world. Agencies want to address those problems, and as you will note, the you know very uh, substantial percentage of the regulatory activity is pursuant to broad grants of discretion to agencies and not mandated. Uh, you know, recently passed legislation requiring certain change. You know. The, uh, a substantial portion is just purely discretionary from statutes passed 50 years ago. Um, and so in that context, I think it does make sense to make sure that to the extent agencies are exercising discretion, they're exercising in a manner consistent with uh, the requirements of cost-benefit analysis and the policy preferences of the president uh, in whom the executive authority is vested under the Constitution. Yeah, so I was, I was kind of thinking another way to get at the problem is to have every regulation originate in the House, right? Um, so we, we have a, 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 it seems like there's, there are those here that seem to think that cost-benefit analysis is about getting to the truth and those that kind of think that it's more of a decision-making process. And I guess to kind of synthesize the comments of, of the panelists, uh, would there be any benefit, just to kind of put it, a point on a question that was sort of asked but not quite answered before, would there be any benefit to reg budgets uh, if we admitted that there was a lot of gaming? If, if, we, if we just accepted that as a fact of life, you know, that the data quality is going to be very low, uh, is there still some sort of democratic or some other value that you get out of a reg budget? Oh, yes. I think the important thing about a reg budget is that, as I said, benefit cost analysis of net benefits positive is a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition for getting into the regulatory budget. That's point one. Point two is the analysis that you do then on a regulatory budget 
of X particular rules, they're in competition with each other. They're not in competition with some metric. And the type of analysis you do is like the kind you do on the budget side of OMB. You compare different programs. And so when you have to compare, not against a metric, you have to compare this program or this rule specifically with this. It cleans, it gives a big incentive to take out a lot of the, uh, 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 the, the flexibility you say. So no, I think they're very compatible. I think a regulatory budget will, will be a way to improve uh, the, what you call flexibility in the regulatory field. Jim, do you think the comparison should include with the appropriations and tax cuts? That the, somebody should sit down and, and say, okay, what's the, uh, the, the net benefits of this appropriation versus re this regulation versus this reduction in taxes? I, I think that would be a, oh, first I can't argue with it theoretically, no. Uh, I think that would be a way off because on tax, on when I was there, I, when I was on the budget side, the kind of analysis done on tax, and we, we would analyze the outlays and stuff, but actually the, what you call the benefits, I didn't see much of that. So I think what you said would be a long-term plan. I would just settle right now with the regs uh, coming into that. And I want to reiterate, not that benefit cost analysis isn't strong, it's that you got to, that's a necessary but not sufficient condition to get in. Once you're in, the analysis changes, the comparison of two projects. So, but Richard, answer your answer. I think that would be a way off. I think that's, that's a big job. And uh, Andrew, as to the question of, you, you mentioned, um, you know, gaming in the budget context. I think uh, one of the most important things to us was transparency of the assumptions. Susan mentioned the importance of assumptions and you know, the great fluctuations that might flow based on changes in assumptions. Um, what we tried to do in the guidance on the 13.771 is provide very clearly for everyone in, you know, I think some 40, you know, Q&As on how OIRA thinks about these things, every, you know, it's a set of assumptions. How are we going to approach, uh, now of course there are lots of outs and pressure valves in there, but, um, but a lot of the assumptions about the framework itself uh, are, are clear, and then of course within each action they should be clear in the RIAs, but, um, but I think that's useful to monitor and to manage any efforts to game systems. Well, please join me in thanking our panelists. You've been listening to a recent discussion of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. I'm the Gray Center's director, Adam White. For more episodes of this podcast, Arbitrary and Capricious, please visit the Gray Center's website or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.